and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Trisha Maya. Trisha is a product leader with nine years of experience in designing, launching, and scaling digital products across industries, from startups to Fortune 15 companies. She has spoken and written on topics ranging from human-centered design in the enterprise to digital inclusion, and specializes in mobile platforms, design thinking, and product growth. So Trisha, welcome. Thank you so much. So I always like to start by just sharing a little bit about people's uh, backgrounds and the way that they got here. So tell me a little bit about how you got into um, product management. Sure. Um, so I guess I'll start from the beginning. I like graduated in um, kind of economics, political science degree many, many years ago. Um, and I was very interested initially in economic development. I worked for the New York City Economic Development Corporation um, for a bit. And then I actually moved to Brazil to work in a microfinance institution there. Um, so was really, really invested in that space. Um, I had to come back to the, to the U.S. eventually and honestly was just very unsure of what to do, wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in kind of like the nonprofit or um, governmental space. But I, to be honest, I just answered an ad on Craigslist for uh, for a really vaguely described job, uh, but it happened to be uh, a software development shop, um, pretty small, co-owned by a couple, and they were looking for someone to manage projects. Um, and it was a, a general project slash product management business uh, analysis role. And so that's what, um, that's what I started with. We had projects from mobile apps to e-commerce sites and everything in between. And it was, um, again, a, a really properly agile, like scrum-led shop. So I kind of learned all of those chops up front, which was great experience. I loved working on a variety of projects and really bringing things into, into life. So that was pretty cool. Um, and that's kind of how I learned more about product management as a discipline and kind of did my own research. I ended up going back uh, uh, to school to do my master's for a couple of years. But when I finished, I knew I definitely wanted to go back into product management. So um, I joined a startup called Braze um, at the time, and I was one of their first PMs. Um, and really, it was a really exciting growth stage um, phase of the company. Everything was really scrappy. It was a lot of smart, um, interesting people. And then over kind of over the years, I decided that I really wanted to see what product management at a large company was. So I joined Verizon um, and worked on a lot of their mobile products and um, managing uh, product teams there for for about three years. And so that was a really exciting time. Um, And most recently, I joined AlphaSites, which is an information services company, kind of not not really a startup, not not a large company somewhere in between. Um, And so it's been really exciting working on um, quote unquote, knowledge products and, and kind of working in more of the, the B2B services space um, as of late. So that's kind of high level that my journey and how I, I basically stumbled into to product management and um, I am where I am now. Yeah, that's awesome. I love how you um, answered a Craigslist ad. <laughs> I know. I actually think it reveals my age because people are like, people used to get jobs on Craigslist. And I'm like, apparently I did. So that's that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um so uh, when, 
you worked a long time ago at the New York City Economic Development Corporation, you said. Yeah. Oh, that, that's fascinating to me. I, I worked um, at the uh, New York City Mayor's Office of Environmental oh. Remediation, and we partnered yeah. with the yeah <laughs> with your the organization you were at a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> oh, cool. yeah we were giving kind of, I guess, the, the mission of the org is like to give loans to small businesses, also large businesses to invest in New York and building businesses and creating jobs in New York. So the mission was very... Um, very cool. It's obviously difficult working for, as you know, um, a governmental organization. Things are move very slowly. Not tons of room for uh, for growth. So it, it was good while it, while it lasted. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's that's about about how I felt too. Um, when you got cited at that first small development shop, how many people worked there? Um, well, let's see. Uh, it, it was. I remember in the, it was a very small office, so it was just me and the two co-founders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, an office in Colombia, so we had a bunch of developers, uh, Colombia and Ecuador, so a bunch of developers offshore. Um, I think we might have had one senior developer in the office, so it was a pretty. It was a pretty small company that we, it was also a great opportunity to learn how to work with distributed teams and, and manage projects that way. Um, I know they're, they're probably bigger now and it was a great place to, to start my career and learn from. But yeah, I remember being in a kind of a tiny little New York City office uh, on, on 32nd Street. So, um, so yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, tell me more about the startup that came after that. So First of all, can you say what it's called? What it was called again? Yeah, so it was called Appboy, um, and now they've rebranded to Braze. It's a marketing automation company. So basically, we worked with a lot of mobile um, mobile app developers, uh, marketers, product managers. Um, we integrated our software into their apps to be able to communicate with their users better. So think like push messaging software, um, kind of email software, in-app notifications, anything around um, how brands and apps communicated with their users. So um, uh, really uh, precise segmentation, um, multivariate testing to make sure you know which messages are converting the highest, which ones are the most personalized. Um, so there's a lot of kind of data-oriented, marketing-driven, I guess, product uh, product space. It's a, it's a, there's tons of competitors and um, really interesting uh, problems happening there. But yeah, it was it was just one of those things that I I thought, I thought was interesting. I also really liked the fact that they um, at that time they didn't uh, they didn't really have a, a product team. It was a bunch of really smart engineers um, uh, building the product, and so it was cool to start to help out with just like baseline processes for like creating roadmaps. And this is how we work with sales teams. And um, this is how we start to talk about what we're doing. Like, I I think when I started, we didn't have like a product marketing function or a lot of um, a lot of major uh, pieces of the, of the company that, that exists today. Um, So it is, it's cool when you kind of work at a a small growing company, you feel like you're a part of a mission, part of a team um, and kind of wearing a lot of hats. So um, yeah, so I would say I probably, delved a lot more into like the process development and setting up the the team for the future um, mm-hmm. rather than even like pure um, just like pure product work so it was it was about mm-hmm. wearing all the different hats and, and helping out wherever I could yeah so when you were doing that I know uh, you know I, I'm sure many of our listeners have experienced the uh, the engineers that push back on adding process so does, is that something that you experienced and how did you uh, how did you get through that? Um, that's a great question. I think I, 
I am always really self-conscious of that because I am not a technical person. I don't have a computer science um, or a computer engineering degree. I've never worked as a developer. And so I think that's a natural question a lot of PMs ask, or I hear a lot at least is like, you know, how much technical skills do I have to have? Should I go back to school and learn, um, you know, learn <laughs> coding? Um, and I, I don't think that you do. I mean, some products are definitely more technical and that background is helpful. But I was, I think I was also um, earlier on in my career. So I was probably particularly, you know, self-conscious about, about those things. So I think it's great when you work with a strong engineering team that is very product centric and product led. But on the flip side, when you're trying to introduce like new processes or new ways of doing things, you get that pushback, not just as a non-engineer, not just as an outsider, but like this thing is working really well for this, um, this phase of the company, but to get the company to get to where it probably wants to be to help it scale, there's kind of a necessary evil of making things more organized or more predictable and working with new teams that didn't exist the year before. You have to introduce new communication mechanisms. How do how are we going to um, you know, communicate this release to our internal folks, to our, our customers? Um, someone needs to document these and create these um, repeatable, sustainable processes. And like, so it's usually the product person that it, that is the bad guy in that respect. So um, I think just by trying to relate with folks and, and tell them what we're trying to do, why we have to introduce this, try to paint things as like the minimum viable process, if that's like a way that resonates. But just to show that we're not doing things for um, bureaucracy's sake or just trying to instill red tape, but to get to this next level, this is kind of, you know, these are the the norms of, of how we're going to have to operate moving forward. But also being open to feedback. And if something's not working or if, if you know, a, a new process, whether it's like, okay, we have to document all the requests we're getting across the organization and rank them in Asana or whatever our project management tooling is. Like um, that is just something we have to do. I, I mean, I know we we tried to get really diligent about like our internal wiki and saying like every you know uh, you know every everything that we do needs to be documented here. That's so onboarding and new hires can be more seamless and that we can and start to move forward. So I think always painting the why behind what we're trying to do, but also being open to feedback if something's just not working um, helps people to relate and just at least give you a, a chance to, to to try to to do what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely helps to, to paint the why for anything that you want people to help you with, right? What are some of the um, first processes that you like to add? Um, I mean, it sounds like I imagine not just at yeah. um, at that company, but at others since then, you've, you've been a part of a growing team yeah. and you had to add things. So where do you start and how do you decide what to do first? I I think communication is probably it's it's probably the, the most important quality of any product manager or product team. Um, it's where things can go right. It's where things can go really really wrong. And so I try to look at at least when I join a company or a team, like what are the existing communication channels between again internal users and if you're having direct communication with your your clients or your your end users. What do they look like? Uh, are they written? How how frequent are they? Or do you have like quarterly newsletters to your clients? Are you having a monthly, you know, in-person roadmap review with your key business stakeholders? Like what is existing today? And then kind of seeing where where there are gaps. I think what I try to do too is like meet as many people as I can in the beginning of a working relationship. And I really just ask like, what are the core pain points you see? Like what is not working? And 
Probably almost unanimously, I think I've always kind of, you always hear, well, I'm not really exactly sure what the product or tech teams are working on, or like, why does it take so long? Or how do you get something on the roadmap? Those questions come up every single time across companies, across industries. Um, And so, you know, if, if those questions didn't happen and communication is perfect, obviously we kind of move on, but I generally find that, um, how the product and engineering teams uh, make clear their thought process. How do things get on the roadmap? What are we doing? When is it going to be ready? How will we be training? Um, Whether it's in, you know, a weekly recap email, a monthly like all hands meeting, or even like a quarterly newsletter, just something to start to communicate this in a more structured fashion. um, Because I generally find communication to be the the biggest make or break aspect of any kind of good team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, So did the team grow significantly while you were there? And what, what did that growth look like? Um, so when I was at Braze, not, um, not so much, I think when I was leaving, we, we had kind of established a proper product function. Um, but now I think the company is super successful. I think there are probably several hundred people all over the world, um, and doing, doing really well. So I'm sure they have a, a much more established product process than, um, or organization that than when I was there. So yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm really excited for, for what they've done so far. That's awesome. And uh, so then after that, you said you went to Verizon. Yep. So what what was it like being a product manager at Verizon? So you, you, you wanted to find out what it was like to be a, at yeah. a big company. So how did that go? I did find out and it was, it was eye-opening. Um, and so <laughs> I loved, honestly, I loved Verizon. I had a great time there. I had really strong managers who helped me grow um, professionally and kind of learning the ins and outs. Less so, I would say, probably from like the pure product management side and more so, how do you get your ideas across in a compelling way when you have to compete with, you know, a thousand other teams for budget or for attention? Um, how do you package what you're doing? And so that was, those were new lessons I had learned because I had always thought, you know, you do good work, it gets seen and that's that. But unfortunately, that's not enough. Um, and I, not to say that I am, a, a, you know, self-promoter by any means, I probably could be doing a lot better there still. But I think those lessons of how you, um, yeah, how you package, how you market, what you're doing, what your teams are doing, the value of your product and really selling it for the value it's creating for your users, using um, you know, user-centric terminology, keeping things simple and keeping things understandable. I think those are some of the lessons that I had learned there. Um, and that's also where I started to manage um, other product managers, which I, which was a first for me. I was kind of just kind of thrown into it, not necessarily something I was looking for, but it has turned out to be, um, you know, one of the most like kind of rewarding, but also challenging aspects of, you know, my jobs and, and things that I've been doing. Um, but yeah, I saw really firsthand going from like a really scrappy startup to um, 160,000 person company with all the different departments spread across the entire world. In some ways, it's frustrating. Things move very slowly, but then on the other hand, you you know you launch a, a, a tiny feature and it affects millions of people. Like that, that scale is pretty cool um, and awesome to um, to consider. So you know there there are obviously pros and cons to to any of those situations. Yeah, are you able to speak to some of the things that you launched while you were there? Yeah, sure. Um, so 
one of the main things that I was in charge of was um, one of our um, consumer facing apps for our Fios customers. So that's kind of your internet provider, um, some people who have home phone service and um, probably most importantly, a TV and and everything uh, around that. So um, we had a pretty old mobile application. And so one of our first challenges was to recreate um, that app, really think about it from a, like a human-centered design perspective. We got new um, new design, a new design team. We had new product folks, including myself on, on the project. And our main mission as a company, which was not really, it's not really surprising, is to get more customers to engage with us digitally, whether that's on the website, the mobile app, um, a, mostly for a cost-cutting perspective, like we, how can we transfer volume away from our call centers, but also from an experience perspective, having a really great digital experience, giving people the tools um, they need to do what they need to do, not have to worry about you know being on the phone for um, minutes or hours, just trying to solve a simple issue. And so we had, um, we basically kind of took a step back, did a lot of user research, understanding like, you know, tell telecoms, Verizon, like not, we would, we would never say we had the best like reputation with our, our customers. There's a lot of angst, I think, with internet service providers and like, why is this, why did, why do these things not work? Why does it, you know, why is it so expensive? Why does it take me forever um, to get through to someone on the phone? And so really taking a step back to think through like, what are the main perceptions of our brand? Not making those assumptions, but talking to customers ourselves. And so that was a really valuable process. Um, we started doing design sprints to kind of try to iterate rapidly on potential solutions. Um, and so we were most importantly introducing new ways of approaching product development at a very old company. Um, and it was really great to have the space and support from our leadership to do that. And of course, it's not like the entire company just like next day was like super, you know, agile and just working the way we were working. But even to make that impact on a small scale with a small number of teams was was pretty encouraging. Um, and so anyway, we kind of redeveloped the app, new look and feel, new functionality. We really invested in a lot of the um, internet tooling because as we know, a lot of people are cutting the cord, not really purchasing um, their cable TV packages anymore, but internet was becoming more and more important. And so speed, reliability, those sorts of things. So we invest a lot in like new tooling for um, for our customers to, you know, check your Wi-Fi speed, get faster speed, um, solve issues as quickly as possible. And so those sorts of um, new technologies were really interesting. I knew nothing about router technology or anything from, you know, a hardware perspective. So um, you quickly realize there's also like these like groups in the organization that are just experts in that thing. And it's fascinating, like, A, you didn't even know they existed, but B, they just know so much about things that I was like, totally, um, totally blind or naive to. So it's, it was not that I I'm using it now in my day to day, like hardware, um, router technology, but it's just interesting to learn a new topic, really talk to people who are experts in that, and figure out ways to um, bring them into your new digital experiences and things we were doing from more of like your your pure app B2C perspective. So so anyway, yeah, that, that was kind of one of the, the main things that, that we worked on and kind of continuing to evolve the app, grow our active users, transition people from, you know, the call centers to digital. And, and so that was a pretty exciting time. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Um, there's a couple of things in there that I'm curious to hear more about. Uh, one thing that we often hear, those of us that spend a lot of time working in product discovery is, you know, people in larger companies saying, well, I'm not allowed to talk to these users. There's all these people between me and them. Yes. So tell me more about how you did that when you were at Verizon. What did that look like? 
Yeah, so we do. We did have, <laughs> not surprising, many specialist teams that were focused on this sort of thing. So they, we had, um, I forgot what they were called, but sort of like voices of customer function, like major organizations, like hundreds of people that were constantly looking at any data that we were getting back from customers. Like we had like pop-ups on the website that would ask people for feedback and lots of people gave feedback. And so parsing through that, um, measuring sentiment. And we also had social media teams that were doing the same thing. They were obviously getting a lot of um, feedback and commentary from users through those means. And so there were teams that were responsible for aggregating that. So that was helpful as a starting point to see what data we had available, what were people saying. Um, but the, you know, the most important thing was kind of getting, getting to users. So in one, in, in some ways, I, I talked to people I knew who had used the service. And so I didn't really get permission. I just kind of like, you know, talk to either acquaintances or, um, or, or just people I knew that at that had the service and, and really used it to see what they had said. We also had a really great, um, I don't know, if it's an organization or part of the company where we would do kind of like testing labs. Like they had a, in the headquarters in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, they have a room basically, or a number of rooms that re- that resemble a house. So it's like you can, a user can come in and like they can watch TV and they could go to the kitchen. And like, it was like to simulate a real life experience. And so we could use those labs and those things to like really simulate, like imagine you're here and your internet's down, like what would you do? So again, maybe over the top for, especially like you'd never find that probably at like a startup or, or some company that lacked resources, but whatever, Verizon's Verizon. So they had these you know, testing labs that we could use. Um, And so we did have teams that were responsible for hooking us up with clients and getting, you know, whatever permissions they needed to do. So I would say Verizon was probably pretty good about um, connecting us to, to our users or to our, our customers when we needed to. So I'm I'm pretty fortunate. Yeah. That's, that's always good to hear. Um, How many, did you have a sense of what, of, what percent of the people or what portion of the people who use like Verizon internet um, actually use the app? Yeah. Um, I probably knew this a lot better a couple of years ago. Um, but I think that, I think when we started, it was probably, honestly, it was probably less than 10% of, of customers really use the app. Um, and that was because a, like there was not really a focus on it. We just, I, honestly, it became a dumping ground for a lot of a lot of things. Like, um, I think the old strategy was very much like people are calling in about topic X, like add feature to the app that like addresses it. But there was no um, focus on like product marketing or like how do we tell customers that now we have this feature or how how do we like develop this in a way that's meeting those problems? Like, it wasn't really, and that's something that we tried to do as like the new more like product driven team with like design driven team, like whatever you want to call it, like more user focused team, I guess, um, was try to address those more holistically. I think we probably got up to about 20% or 20, like 25, um, which was, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I think it, from where we had come from and knowing like the amount of customers that Verizon has, we were pretty excited about how many people were at least experiencing it um, occasionally, even if it was just to pay their bill or check their bill or something like that. Uh, the awareness piece was key for us. And so that's hopefully something they continue doing after I left. But um, yeah, it was a combo of things of like working with call center operations, working with the marketing team, working with the technology teams, and um, which is the essence 
essence of product management, but it was cool to do it with an organization that that large. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting story. Um, so w- why did you decide to leave Verizon and um, go? Did you go straight to Alpha Sites from there? Or? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, so I was yeah I was at Verizon for three years, which for me felt like um like a nice time to kind of reflect and think about what I had done and kind of where I wanted to be. Um, I mean, in some ways, Verizon has always been a large company and things move slow, more slowly. And it was my first like, quote unquote, big company experience. And I think at, at my core, I'm I'm more of a nimble kind of startup, be scrappy person for better and for worse. Um, and so I think I at that point, I, I felt like I learned all those like maybe big organizational le- lessons like you know, some of the things I mentioned earlier in terms of like how to communicate your message, how to work with, you know, other people. Um, and I was just really itching to go to a, a smaller company. Um, but I also thought that I didn't necessarily want to go to a, a startup as small as some of the companies I had worked for previously, similar to, I guess, my um, decision to go to Verizon. I was like, I never worked at a mid-sized company, so let's give it a go. And so Alpha Sites was very much within that camp, but it was also interesting because, uh, Alpha Sites is a services company. First and foremost, we have, you know, a, a service. We connect our clients with the knowledge they need to make better business decisions. So sort of like a matchmaker um, between our clients and um, these advisors or experts in this field. So it's also an interesting challenge, again, because I just had never done it before of like, how do you make, take a traditionally service-based company and, and put a product or tech lens on it? What does that mean? Like, what do you focus on? What is, you know, what does success look like? How do you even like tackle these issues when it's not like you're not building the thing that you're selling as like at a, like a core tech company. And so I think that was just an interesting challenge for me. Um, the team was, you know, strong, but, but uh, relatively small. So being able to be part of a, a smaller team and, and help, help grow it and help define, you know, how we work together. Um, that was a unique opportunity. And that was what interested me initially. Cool. What are some of the things you learned about that experience uh, of building a product for a, a company that's mostly a service organization? Cool. So, yeah, um, the main goal for us is really building internal tools for our uh, client-facing team to serve our clients. So um, that is a basic custom workflow we have built internally to manage projects, manage payments, kind of the end-to-end. Um, and that was, you know, doing that better, faster, everything around that was kind of the core, kind of core purpose there. Um, and so I think that focus on internal tooling was very different. Like I had never really worked on internal tools um, and how you think about them is slightly different. Cause like at the end of the day, those people have to use your software. It's not like they have a choice. Um, and so it's different, like it, not that you want to create a terrible experience just because people have to use it, but you're really thinking about how to make things more efficient or in some ways, like, yeah, sometimes they did have a choice, like they would, you know, keep notes externally in like, a, you know, a local document versus within the system. So figuring out what was what, what was happening that was not intended and figuring out ways to incorporate that behavior, bringing it into the core workflow process. Like, I think the types of problems that we were trying to solve were just different from, you know, things I had worked on in the past. Um, but also, I think there's um, more of a perception or I guess like a transformational um, process that's happening in the sense of like, in the past, I think at many service companies, and also at alpha sites, like tech was always there, we've always had like a website, we always had a system. But 
the more of like the mental transition to thinking about like, okay, how do we use technology as a core enabler or like what new products and services can we offer be above and beyond what we're doing today because we have a strong technology team or we're investing in data science. Like it is not easy. Like there, it's not clear exactly what that roadmap looks like or what we have to do, but even like just getting people across the org to understand like, yes, we have a tech team. This is what we do. Um, what, this is what product managers do. It's not just making this internal system better. We're trying to also understand what our clients need the same way that you guys are and figuring out ways that we can uniquely help them potentially with our technology and our product strategy. And so that's kind of the transition we're going through now, which is like a really challenging thought exercise um, because again, it's not clear. There's not like a, a clear cut roadmap for what we have to do, but it, it also makes it very interesting. Yeah. Have you gotten pushback in the company about things like investing in design or, you know, caring about what the, what the user of the tool thinks? Yeah. Um, yes. I, I've, I've definitely talked about this with my teams before. I mean, we didn't really, we didn't have any designers when I joined last, um, last January. And so that was one of my first priorities was getting, you know, a design presence because I just had, I've always worked really closely with designers at any of my previous um, jobs. And it's always, it's always just like a critical function, I think, to, to product management and to technology in general. So like, for me, that was really clear. Um, even if we only invested in, in internal systems, it's still very clear, like someone who is thinking about um, the end-to-end -end experience and how things fit together and how things are perceived, like that level of nuance and detail is so important. So A, that, that is important regardless, but B, as we want to, again, get into a world where we are thinking and um, creating new experiences or things we haven't done before, definitely we'll need like strong product designers. And so I did get some pushback initially from um, to kind of different people who just were, you know, we, we, we didn't have designers, so why do we need them? Like we can kind of do this ourselves, but it was so great because as soon as we just started getting strong design talent in, it kind of like unlocked the doors and everyone was like, okay, well, you know, we need more now, like, or this team doesn't have designers. And like, it was a great kind of, um, not experiment, like it was a great way to show the value of design as soon as we kind of, again, unlock that door. Um, and now they have way too much work to do. We probably do need to hire more designers. <laughs> um, what are some of the other pushbacks you've gotten while working uh, at Alpha Sites? Yeah, I think there's just a lot of, um, and this is natural, I think, anywhere. It's like the time you spend on optimizing your current product and what you're doing versus creating the mental space to think about what's next or what are we what are we not even thinking about now that we should be investing in. And it's difficult because we like we we can have work for you know twice as many people for the next 20 years. Like we know X, Y, and Z reasons why the system is broken or like why it needs to be better or how we can get more efficient at this. Um, and the problem is unless we like, or at least some people kind of take the, themselves out of that and say like, okay, we acknowledge there's tons of work to do, but if we just heads down focus on this, we're never going to be able to create, again, those new experiences, um, really have time to listen to our, our customers or our clients and do that. So it is a constant kind of struggle because you want to keep the lights on, you know, things can't break. We have to have a, a working, um, a working ecosystem but we don't want to spend 100% of our time 
um, focus there. So honestly, we it's not like we have a rule where it's like, okay, you know, 20% of time we're going to focus on quote unquote innovation products. I think it's just everyone, product engineering design has to be thinking in this like dual duality really of um, kind of approaching, you know, our, how we focus our time and energy. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you had a pretty natural progression from, from the beginning of entering into product um, to, you know, managing other products managers. Are there things that you did along the way that you think really helped you level up to be able to, to really become a product leader? Yeah, I think I just naturally really enjoy reading and do like meeting other product managers, going to conferences, like when we, when we can go to them. Um, and so I've always really appreciated um, different ways of approaching product management. I really strongly believe that there's not one right way to do it. There are probably wrong ways to do it that we want to avoid, but really looking at how someone approaches product differently in an e-commerce setting versus, you know, a financial institution or someone who is more junior in their career versus more senior and seeing like the ways and the frameworks that um, that they use. So more from like, I guess, a social experiment perspective. I just like learning from people um, and different ways of doing that. And so I think I just have a lot of tools in my my toolkit to be able to kind of say, oh, you know, I heard about someone have this problem before. This is how they tackled it. Um, but on the flip side, I don't really have like a strong, uh, you know, prescriptive way. Like you must do product management this way. And this is like X, Y, and Z, what you have to follow. So I guess it, it kind of comes with its its pros and cons. But I think just naturally, I'm a, I'm a good listener. I hope, I, I think I'm a good communicator, which I mentioned before, I think is, is a, one of the, the top skills of, a, of any good product manager. And so I think I kind of carry that over to people I'm working with or who, who are on my team. Um, I always try to listen first, uh, really understand like where they're coming from before kind of just like shouting at them. And, you know, I, I think generally that's probably a good way to approach interpersonal communications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Um, are there any other lessons, whether about becoming a product leader or just product management in general that you that you would give like pieces of advice to somebody who's younger in their career? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I can speak to maybe some of my earlier experiences, especially like when I just started becoming a manager again, like I mentioned, I was kind of thrown into it. I mean, Verizon did give trainings on um, how to become a manager. I think I got them like six months into the job. It was a little late at that point. Um, I think I, I needed to be a little bit stricter, especially with some some members on on my team. You know, they're always like, if you see signs and you have like a gut feeling that maybe someone is either coasting or they're kind of not giving it 110%, um, not tolerating that for too long is, um, is probably important. Um, and so I probably could have been much stronger in those ways and kind of listening to my gut instinct. Cause I think when you do these like manager trainings, you know, especially at a big company, it's very, um, very formal, like you need to give someone X, you know, X number of weeks warning. Um, then you have to like write up a performance improvement plan. They have to go on the plan. And so you're, you're naturally like, oh, it's just such a big deal to like put these measures into place and like potentially get rid of someone who, who shouldn't be on the team anymore that you almost just ignore it. And that's something that I, I did admittedly, and that I definitely learned from, and hopefully I'm, I'm getting better, getting better at that, but not tolerating mediocrity, I think was, um, was something that I, I 
you know, kind of learn the hard way because at the end of the day, it reflects poorly on you um, and your team's results. And when you you are kind of presenting your output to leadership or other or, or other you know important stakeholders, um, it, it makes you look weak if you if you tolerate that behavior. And so that's something that I I had um, definitely learned. Yeah, that's definitely a hard thing for a lot of us, I think. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the framework for radical candor, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, that that upper left quadrant of ruinous empathy is yep. sort of my uh, my danger zone, too, that I have to stop myself from being like, oh, but they had a rough week or, oh you God, know, exactly. their wife is yes. sick or whatever. <laughs> like, 100%. Yeah. So it's definitely easier said than done. It's like, just don't do that. Um, but yeah, it's very real, like people, emotions and situations come into play and you know, you're a human at the end of the day. And so you have a heart, um, but not that you have to be heartless as a good manager, but yeah, radical candor for sure uh, is the way to go if you're able to, if you're able to master it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I I know for me, it always was helpful to think about the other people on the team because, you know, I think we've probably all also been on a team where there was someone who was not pulling their weight and, and, you know, it's demotivating for the rest of us, right? So that's that's my... They, they also say, I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably better for the person as well to kind of leave when when they need to. And so they can either like have a wake up call, learn, you know, kind of look at themselves more self-critically um, or just move on to an opportunity that suits themselves and this, their skills better. And so that's also, you know, another another way to, to look at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like this is a, a good segue. I know you had mentioned that you're involved in some uh, in some nonprofits, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, sure. So a few years ago, I participated in um, a program called Delta NYC, um, which was sponsored by uh, Civic Hall Labs, uh, which is a I think like a semi-governmental nonprofit organization in New York City, um, and the program was really awesome. Um, they paired product people, designers, engineers with local nonprofits that, you know, requested some help, whether it was building a new website. Um, In our case, you know, I I was paired with an organization called I'll Go First, and we really wanted to build a mobile prototype. And at the time, again, I was working at Verizon, and so I was really heavily involved in mobile, and I was kind of the product lead on that project. We were paired with some really awesome designers, really great engineers. And yeah, we built a, a, a prototype and, and basically I'll go first is, um, is an organization that really focuses on mental health and using mental health tech to help people um, deal with trauma and deal with kind of issues that they're going with in a way that focuses on storytelling, narratives, like really um, trying to get people to express their um, their feelings and what they've gone through in ways that um, honors where they've come from, honors their struggle, but really puts into words, uh, you know, what they're going through. So they don't bottle it in, they don't hold it in, um, but they can express it and then get help for, for the things that they need. And so it's run by a woman, um, Jasmine, yes, which who, who is awesome and, and kind of has, is, you know, an entrepreneur, activist, and has been involved in kind of many really important projects. Um, and so she, she has a, a podcast. You should definitely check it out. She talks to people um, in an array of industries, other activists um, who, you know, have struggled with their own stories and how they tell them. Um, and so anyway, I was, um, 
I was paired with this organization and we we kind of helped them a little bit from the, the mobile side. Um, and since then, I've worked really closely um, with Jess and um, trying to kind of further further the organization and, and the great work that they do. And so it's been really rewarding. I'm, again, really interested in obviously like mobile and technology, but also mental health tech and um, all of the opportunity that it could provide if, if leveraged the right way. Um, I think there is a underserved need there. So I'm excited to kind of be part of that organization. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, do you know what her podcast is called? Yeah, um, I think it's called I'll Go First, but let me check. Um, okay, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's called I'll Go First with Jess Muniz. So, um, so check it out. They actually just, uh, uh, we just launched a new version of the website. So you can get all the podcasts on I'llGoFirst.com. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds like a really great initiative. Yeah. So awesome. Um, and how can people find you if they want to learn more, follow you online? Yeah, um, I'm pretty boring. I should have a Twitter. I don't, um, but you can connect with me on, on LinkedIn uh, under Trisha Maya. I'm happy to kind of meet new people. Again, I'm really interested in learning how um, different different sorts of products operate, how they're built, how people approach, you know, some of the same challenges that we all have in product management in kind of their own unique ways. So I'm always happy to kind of meet fellow, fellow product folk. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Trisha. It's been really fun talking to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.